Yeah, make sure you have a Bible. Make sure you have one of those note cards. Make sure you have a pen. There's a little outline on the back of that. How you guys doing? Anybody have spring break this week, right now? I'm sure, I'm sure you're enjoying this weather. Mike in the back goes like, dude, it's great that all these students are here. He goes, it's like, it's just gorgeous outside, you know? So, um, thank you for coming to Oasis tonight, even though it is gorgeous outside and you could be doing, well, this is probably the best thing you could be doing, I think, but, um, yeah, dial in. We're going to jump right in. Um, don't really have announcements too much this week. Excited about all the DR applications, and we got a good team going, so I took care of that earlier. Yes. We're in a, we're in a series right now, as Gabe kind of prayed, called Heaven and Hell, and, and so most of you know this, you're here last week, we're, we're spending two weeks on hell and then two weeks on heaven. Um, a pretty, like, deep and serious topic. I hope you know. I mean, so we're all, I, I want you guys to come and, like, experience genuine community when you come to Oasis, and I hope you have fun with your friends. So we're all about having fun. I, I feel like we've tackled, like, the, the most difficult of, like, Christian topics this semester. And so this is, this is a heavy one, as you know. I mean, we, we just, last week, right off the bat, Ryan launched into that, like, Francis Chan video. And anyway, so I hope you feel, though, the weightiness of some of these topics in Scripture, and it's good. So I know some of you are like, man, it's like spring fever, and, but seriously, thank you for being here, and we're going to dive in. Will you pray with me just real quick? We just, uh, I want us to focus. Father, we've, we've already prayed to you a lot tonight, but um, God, would you help us just, just focus? God, would you wake us up? Would you help um, kind of dial us in? Would you... Um, God, not let the person sitting to our right or to our left or in front of us or behind us be a distraction. God, I pray that we would be attentive to your word tonight. God, this topic is difficult, and yet it's very, very important. And it's all over your word, and it's true, and it's truth, and uh, we need it. So, um, God, would you humble us? God, I loved the message in that video last week. God, we, we so often approach you with such arrogance God, I can be so arrogant. Um, so God, I pray that you'd humble all of us. I pray you'd especially humble me. God, I um, certainly know that I'm not an expert teacher by any means. Um, but God, we want to look just openly and honestly at what your word has to say about this. So God, would you speak tonight? We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, so hell. Kind of scary thing. Hell is a profound and dreadful reality. We learned that last week. It is real. Um, to speak of it lightly or to not speak of it at all or to any, any way, I think, minimize its uh, horror, its um, the imagery that we read in the scriptures um, proves that we don't grasp the magnitude of hell and what it is. I don't know that anyone, I don't know of anyone who's ever like overstated the reality of hell. And uh, I want to I even, I guess, just say, I just kind of pray this, but I'm, I'm certainly no expert on this topic. Um, anything that I know about hell, I've learned from the scriptures myself and from other teachers who have taught it, much like many of you. Um, I want to give credit tonight. I love certain pastors and teachers, and I listen to a lot of those. And so um, I pulled a lot of this stuff tonight, again, from uh, Pastor John Piper, who's brilliant. And uh, um, Dr. Tim, Timothy Keller, who's a pastor in New York City. Um, these guys are awesome, but here's the thing. It's really hard for us to get past some of the horrid images that Jesus 
speaks of when he speaks of hell in the New Testament. Jesus speaks of hell more than any other person in the Bible, in the four Gospels. And so real quick, we're going to start with this. Here's a list of the images Jesus used about hell. This is not exhaustive, but they're going to pop up on the screen. Here's how hell is described by Jesus. A place of darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that's like extreme anger when you're like, you like grit your teeth. That's in Matthew 8, 12, and four other times in Matthew. So five times that phrase is used. Where their worm will not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9. Um, again, unquenchable fire from Matthew 3 and Mark 9. Eternal fire, Matthew 25. The hell of fire, Matthew 18, 9. Uh, Matthew 25 um, calls it eternal punishment. Or agony in the fire, Luke 16. Um, Tim Keller, when he speaks on hell, he always says this. He always says, the, uh, the imagery of um, fire, hell fire, he goes, is, um, is probably metaphorical. And everybody goes, whew. And then he says this. He usually says, it's metaphorical probably for something infinitely greater than literal flames. And everyone's like, what? What does that mean? But so who knows? I mean, like, is there literal flames in hell? Maybe that's metaphorical. But the point of all these is that we're meant to shudder. We're meant to kind of recoil from this kind of imagery in the reality. We're meant to tremble and to fear. We're meant not to deny it when we encounter this stuff into Scripture. We're meant to run to the arms of Jesus who can save us from it. Um, Revelation 14, 11 is probably the most graphic New Testament statement of the eternal suffering of the unrepentant. And it says it like this, the smoke, get this, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Torment forever and ever. Like really? And the endless suffering of unrepentant sinful people is a reality. We, that was like Ryan's point last week. And it's good for us to know about. Um, but here's our hope. Here's the whole, here's our hope. It should fill us with awe and wonder and joy at the death of one man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only perfect man who ever lived, could bear and did bear this infinite penalty for sin, this hell for us. He was a substitute for us, for everybody, in here, out of here, that repents and that trusts in Jesus. If hell, you guys, if hell is a picture of what our sin deserves, that should give us a clue to the magnitude of the glory of God, to the holiness of God, that God is that far removed from us. I was just, if hell, this horrendous picture image, if that's the the penalty for sin, God must be like so great and glorious. And so I think until we come to grips with this terrible and this terribly real doctrine, we will never begin to understand the depths of what Jesus did for us on the cross. His body was destroyed in the worst possible way, and if his body was destroyed like that on the cross, it was nothing compared to what happened to his soul. When he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think in that moment he was experiencing hell itself, because you guys, put it this way, if you like have a mild acquaintance, somebody you know, and you find out that they hate you or don't like you or reject you, 
that hurts, right? You don't, you don't even need to know them that well. That, that kind of hurts. Now, if you have a good friend that does the same, they just reject you. We are not friends anymore. That hurts a lot worse. But if you have a spouse, say if you have a spouse that rejects you, that turns away from you, that says, I want, I want this instead, or I want this other person, I want nothing to do with you, that is far more devastating than any of the others. And so think of this. Jesus' relationship with God the Father, you guys, was beginningless. Like, you can't even fathom. So God is part of the Trinity. And from eternity past, he's in relationship with the Father, infinitely greater than the most intimate and passionate of any human relationships. And Jesus on the cross is cut off from God, which has never happened. But on the cross, he is, it had to be the most unimaginable hell possible. And he did it voluntarily for you and for me so that we'd never have to experience that. So that's our hope. Um, You guys, I want to dive into three main points tonight. There's a lot of arguments against this whole topic. I want to hopefully, hopefully clarify some of these. So if you have an outline, if you have a note card, there's an outline on the back of there. Um, to understand hell, you need to understand three things. You need to understand three things. I'll go through them one at a time. First of all is this. Sin is slavery. Sin is slavery. If you have Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at um, verses 19 through 26 of Luke chapter 16. This is a parable, so it's not like a, like a true story, but Jesus is teaching here. This is a parable. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he, the rich man, was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his tongue in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. I want you to see from this passage that um, sin is more than just breaking the rules. Like the classic definition of sin, if I asked any of you, you might say, well, sin sin is anything that breaks the law of God. Anything that goes against God's standard. But I like to define sin like this. That it's making something besides God our, our ultimate value and worth. Making something, anything besides God, our ultimate value and worth. See, in this passage, um, there's this rich man. And you'll even notice that the poor man has a name and this rich man does it. In fact, in, in all of Jesus' parables, I don't think in any other parable do any of the characters have a name. But in this parable, the poor man has a name, the rich man doesn't. Um, You'll notice, so this man is rich. Um, it is almost totally unlikely that this rich, rich man would have been an atheist. If he was living in that day in the first century, just because of the culture and because he had 
um, maybe status and wealth because he was rich, he most surely would have believed in the God of the Bible. He would have prayed to the God of the Bible. He probably would have worshipped at the temple. And yet, here's the rich man, nameless, and in hell. Well, this beggar is in heaven. Um, it's certainly not wrong at all to have money, to be rich, but it appears in this parable that this man not only had money, but that his money had him, that he was extremely greedy, that it controlled him, that perhaps it was his God. It says that he lived in luxury every day, and this, this beggar sat at his table longing to be fed, but this rich man never did anything. Um, some of you in here might say uh, that you're not a Christian. You would maybe openly say, I come, it's fun, my friends are here. I'm not necessarily a Christian. You would certainly maybe say, I'm certainly not religious. Um, I want you to know that even without realizing it, you are probably extremely religious. That you, by your lifestyle, you're worshiping all kinds of things. Um, we try to find salvation through worshiping all kinds of stuff that we think will ultimately satisfy, will bring us joy, all kinds of things other than God that in the end will control us and in the end will um, lead us to destruction. So on the one hand, sin is separation from God and all that God has from joy and wisdom and love and good things of all kinds. Um, but I want you to understand that sin is slavery. Um, Romans 1, uh, 21 through 25 talks about how um, it says how man and uh, we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. We love to do that in this world, especially in America. There's all kinds of created stuff, and we love the stuff more than we love the creator that gave us all of it. Um, so we were built to worship God, like, supremely, and yet we live for love and for work, for achievement, for acceptance from others, for popularity, we live to be morally upright. Perhaps we live to be religious. And so all of us, if you're in here, whether you think you're a, you're a Christian or not, whether you're religious or not, you could be the most skeptical person and you're in here. I want you to think about the fact that you worship things. You're a worshiper. We worship idols, these false saviors, to get our worth. And so we're enslaved with guilt because if we fail if we fail to attain them, we're like, oh, if we don't live up to our standards, we feel guilty. Or we get angry because um, our idols get taken away from us. Or we can't have them. Or we have fear because our idols are threatened. In fact, do you think about that? Every time you get angry, it's probably because something that you really, really love just got taken away from you. Your image, um, your honor, your respect. Um, sin is worshiping anything but Jesus. Uh, we know that the wages of sin is death, but think about the fact that sin is also slavery. Um, if you're living a life enslaved to sin, and you're like, I could care less about God. Uh, I'm in control of my own life. I might be headed to hell. Who cares? Think about the fact that you are freely choosing to be on that path. You are freely choosing it. What if, C.S. Lewis always gives this imagery, what if hell is just the continuation of what you've wanted your whole life? If you've been selfish your whole life, he kind of says, what if hell is just, you're stuck in that? That God says, you know what? 
fine, I'm going to give you what you want. And so hell is this never-ending game of like king of the mountain. But not only do you want everything, everybody else there wants everything too. And so it's madness. It's this never-ending fight. It's this never-ending struggle. C.S. Lewis, um, in his writings, calls hell the greatest monument to human freedom. He says it's the greatest monument built to human freedom, life without God. So that's point one. Sin is slavery. Point two, got your outlines ready? Christianity's view of hell and justice is more personal, is a more personal view than the alternative. Christianity's view of hell and justice is a more personal view than the alternative. I want to read John 3.16. You all know this verse. I'm going to read 16 through 18. The personal side of this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Um, there's a lot of people that, that say, um, I believe in a, in a loving God, but I certainly don't believe in a God that would um, send people to suffer forever. This whole idea of, of hell, even God um, putting Jesus on the cross, like is that some kind of form of cosmic uh, child abuse? Like what was the deal with that? Um, but so if you say that, I hear that a lot. I believe in a, a loving God. I don't believe in a God that would send anyone to hell. You have to ask this question in return. What did it cost that kind of God to love us? What did it cost him to love us? Where were the thorns in the nails? Where, um, where did God agonize and cry out? Where did he fight for us? What did he endure in order to receive us? And the only answer back is, well, I don't think he had to. I don't think hell's necessary, and it didn't cost God anything. That really, really has to be the only answer. Well, it didn't cost God anything. Um, but that's really very ironic, because in an effort to make God more loving, then we've just made God less loving, because we've rebelled against God and his standards, and you'd think there'd be justice for that, that there would need to be justice for that, but apparently God doesn't really care that much. Because if there's no hell, there's no justice. His love, in the end, I guess, like needs to take no action. It's merely sentimental. That's not really even love. If he's just indifferent. See, the worship of a God like this would be impersonal and philosophical and ethical, but that's it. There would be no joyful self-abandonment, no awe and wonder, no humble boldness, no constant sense of worship. We wouldn't sing to a God like that, your light will shine when all else fades. God, your glory goes beyond all fame. Because that kind of God, it didn't cost him anything. That's not even love. Um, so this approach, like I said at the point, makes God very impersonal. Um, it basically says, it doesn't matter if Christ died for you. That didn't really need to happen, the crucifixion. A lot of people say this. That was just an example. And so you, sh you just need to be, that Jesus is just your example. But to say that is to say that the essence of religion it's just to be good, to be good enough, to know the right stuff, not to have a personal relationship with God. But if, you guys, if only good people can be saved, 
If only good people can find God, then the, 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 the essence of religion is um, just to understand and to do the right things, to follow the rules. Um, the only problem with that is we've all faced this. We can't live up to those rules. How do you know when you've done enough? Where's the standard? The whole karma thing? Where's the standard? There's been no cosmic standard given. The Ten Commandments, it's not there. We've all failed that anyway. So how do you know when your good deeds have outdone your bad? You see, no philosophy, no mere philosophy can save us. No amount of rule-keeping can save us. And so the essence of um, the gospel is certainly not less than understanding truths and principles, but it's infinitely more than that. The essence of salvation is knowing God as a person. It's John 17, 3, when Jesus prays this, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they may know you. Jesus says, that's the, that's the point, that's the goal. Um, with, it, it's the, the same as with knowing anybody. There's there's weeping and crying and relating and um, rejoicing and encouraging. Um, the gospel, you guys, calls us to a wildly passionate relationship with Jesus. And so if God didn't have to, if he doesn't bring justice to sin, if he didn't go to the cross, what did it cost God for? Um, you end up with a less loving God. And so to understand hell, you must see that it's a more personal view than any alternative. All right? Last one. Point three, there is no love without anger. You're saying, what? There's no love without anger? There is no love without anger. I'm going to explain that in a minute. I'm going to read to you 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, this is a great passage. Um, Paul's writing this to the church of the, uh, the Thessalonians. And uh, he says this to the people. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and trials that you're enduring. He says, all of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Listen to this. This is a great verse. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. You guys, that's good news for every one of us in here who's faced injustice. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. When will this happen, you might ask? Well, he says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Justice will come. That doesn't sound like good news for some of us, but it's really good news for like, Terror for people like Hitler who deserve who deserve to pay for the crimes they've committed. Here's the thing: a lot of people say this too. How can a loving God also be a God of wrath? Like the Bible uses this word wrath, it just means anger, but it's like extreme anger. How do you justify those two? I'd answer this: um, a God with no wrath who doesn't get angry cannot be a God of love. And let me explain this: any any loving person is often filled with wrath or anger at injustice. Any of you, if somebody tried to harm you, your parents would not just sit idly by. They would be angry. If somebody tried to hurt my four-year-old daughter, I would want to hurt them. I would get very angry. But here's the thing. I want to quote this. Uh, Becky Pippert, um, who wrote this book called Hope Has Its Reasons, writes this. Think how we feel when we see 
Someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Get this, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final, the final form of hate is indifference. She goes on to say, human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in himself the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. And then she concludes, she says, if I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more the morally perfect God who made them? And I love, I love this next line. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. You see, God being angry and God being just is the only true and right response to rebellion and injustice. I mean, think about the fact, again, that anger is not the opposite of love, but that hate is. And God isn't saying he's hating people who will suffer, the people that will go to hell, but it's justice. God could only be called unloving if he did nothing about our sin. Again, um, how do you respond to this? How do you respond to all this, this like teaching on hell? Well, maybe just simply this one thing. The practical purpose of hell should be to shock us out of our love affair with the world and send us running, you guys, to Jesus Christ. Send us running to him because you know, you know this, but the fear of hell cannot save you. It has not saved anyone. It cannot get you to heaven. And so many people maybe just want heaven because they're afraid of hell. But fear of hell will not save you. Only knowing and loving and having that personal relationship with Jesus Christ can do that. And so I say to you guys, and I know so many of you know him and love him, but do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Or was it just this prayer once? Was it just this thing and you go on living your life just like everybody else? Has he changed your life? Do you realize what he did for you on the cross, the penalty he took for you? But examine your own heart and run to him. Run to him. Fall at his feet. Look at the beauty of what he's done. You hear teaching like this, and it still is very difficult. It's, it was helpful for me to realize that God's a just God. He cannot let sin go unpunished. But he totally provided a way. It's not like there's condemnation for anyone. We read that in John 3. Um, I pray tonight, whether you're a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for years and years, or whether you never have, run to Jesus. Pour your heart out to him. Maybe it's in the quiet of your bed tonight when all the like fun and the, your friends are away, but you just need to say, Jesus, I need you desperately. I'm lost in my sin. Will you save me? Let's pray. God, uh, this is a hard teaching. It's hard to know that this is true, but God, I love the fact that, God, hell proves that it costs you something. There is penalty for our rebellion against you. God, I'm so, I'm so glad you're a God of justice. God, some of us in this room have been wronged, have been attacked, have been, um, as we talked about last, maybe sexually assaulted. God, certain people need justice. God, I don't wish hell on anyone, though. 
Jesus, I pray that we would understand the magnitude of your payment for us, that you took hell for us. And God, that would propel us into um, your arms, your grace, your beauty. So Jesus, right now, would we run to you? I pray, God, that we maybe picture you in our mind. You're running toward us with open arms. God, you love us so much and you don't want hell for us. God, you don't want hell for our friends. I pray as Ryan taught last week, God, we would seek out our friends, that we would that we'd want them to know you, that we'd tell them about you, that we'd invite them to church. Jesus, we, we love you, we adore you, and we thank you for your word. And God, bring out the discussion, bring out the questions tonight in life groups. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.